back around 200 years ago, it was a really big deal when somebody who was known as a great lecturer came to town. Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, one of our Unitarian ancestors, he, um, he made his living going around to places and reading out his essays, delivering them with great feeling, and they were long. People would flock to hear them. You know, there weren't any movies in those days, much less anything like that you could watch at home. The nights were pretty long with, uh, in the winter there in New England and places like that with uh, limited light to lengthen the days. And people kind of had to make their own entertainment. They talked, they read, they made music much more than listen to other people making music. But I guess it was a big enough deal when a big lecturer came to town that people would fill up a hall, a church, a meeting house to hear the likes of Emerson speak. And they would listen raptly, more or less, as he spoke for upwards of two hours. Great times. So you all comfortable? You ready to settle in? Yeah, now I'm not going to do that. Um, I am going to give you a little bit of a history of the sermon, which might, um, might be just as deadly. But um, the reason is because uh, over the last couple of years, I've been talking about, um, in, in various services, about why we do the things we do in the, in the service. And um, today, I'm coming to the sermon. Why do we do this? Why do we have what is called... Um, sometimes disparagingly, sometimes positively, a sermon sandwich. That's kind of our, the structure of our services. Um, you know, we have music, and we have caring and sharing, and we have uh, readings and silence and so on, and then we have the heart of the matter, the sermon, as if that's what the service is really for, and then we have a few things to wrap that up, and we go home. It, is not, it has not always been that way, and it's not that way in every tradition. Um, and probably when I look at the history, I will be largely misidentifying um, why we do it here today. Because my view is colored very much by my own experience of sermons, listening to them um, as much as giving them, and you may have a very different experience. So I look forward to hearing about, about that. Um, but not in the service, because that's part of how we do our services. We have a little talking back and forth, right? But then the minister takes the floor. Thanks. So a long time ago in the Western religious tradition, in biblical times, we know that sermons don't seem to have been a part of the worship experience. They weren't a part of what we have as uh, what the equivalent of services. Services were mostly rituals. Specifically, they were the ritual of sacrifice. Back in the days when, when um, the Jews had the temple, they had extremely elaborate rules about 
how and what to sacrifice and exactly how that was done and what kind of architecture and so on. And then around the sacrifice, it appears, we know from things that have been passed on, that um, there might have been some music and so on. There might have been a procession, um, some uh, ritual before the ritual, but we don't have any evidence that somebody got up and talked at any length about even why we do that sacrifice, much less anything else in the tradition. Now, there were people in that time who did something we might call preaching. Those were the prophets. And when we look at biblical literature, we see them in the books of the prophets. The books of the prophets write down things that somebody like Isaiah or Hosea or Micah or Ezekiel said. And they did what kind of um, you might recognize from a street corner here nowadays. Um, 24th and Mission has quite a lot of this going on if you visit the city and listen to that for a little while. Hyde, um, uh, Hyde Park is famous for it, Preacher's Corner in London. Somebody just stood up and said, hey, I got some things to tell you about how I see the world. The prophets in the Bible are telling you how I see God's word to us. Here are the things that we ought to do. Here are the ways we're not doing it. Here's what's going to happen if we don't shape up. Took a lot of that kind of thing. When we talk about prophecy nowadays, we tend to mean looking to the future, um, like somebody reading your palm and making a prophecy about what will happen. But the biblical prophets, they didn't really do very much of that. They might say, if you don't change your ways, bad things are going to happen to, to you. Bad things are going to happen to us as a people if we do not take care of the poor, of the widows and orphans, for example. Um, but they weren't saying, oh, I can see in, in a crystal ball so much as they were just, well, they were preaching. So you had the prophets preaching, but that didn't happen in the service. You had the priests doing the sacrifice in the service, but they didn't preach. And then somewhere over the centuries, those two functions merged. First, they both happened in the service, and then sometimes they were even carried out by the same person. And from what I can glean, it seems like one of the big turning points was when Greek culture took over. Um, well, as we know, in the time of Jesus, the Greek culture and then the Roman culture that followed it was dominant in Palestine, in the land where he lived. And it was dominant in all that part of the world. So the influence of the Greeks and then the Romans, who had a really strong tradition of oratory, of giving speeches, think of Socrates, of standing in the marketplace and saying as elegantly as you can, here is something I think you should all think about. And people arguing. Well, you brought that together with the Jewish and then the new Christian tradition. And now we had these services where somebody said, oh, I'm going to bring some of that oratory, some of that skill as a speaker to talking to people about religion, about how I see our religious obligations or opportunities, what's happening in our world right now that shows how we need to listen more to the word of our faith. 
also around this time, in fact, um, not long after the death of Jesus, the second temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And from that time, the Jews have not had sacrifices in their services at all. Instead, some other rituals in the service kind of stand in where that used to happen. And yes, there is a sermon, traditionally. Likewise, in a Christian church, there is usually a sermon. In fact, kind of a sermon sandwich. But some churches have much more of an emphasis on ritual. And I might just be out on my own limb here, but I notice when I ask colleagues of other traditions and look around at how long is your sermon and what's expected to happen in the service? Congregations that have a major ritual at the center of every service, namely Catholic and Episcopal Anglican churches where the, where the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the taking of the, of the wine and bread, is the center of the service, they preach like seven, eight minutes. If I preached only seven, eight minutes, you, you might not mind, but you might feel like, oh, that, that was short. I was kind of expecting a little more time to think about that idea. Whereas um, traditions that do um, very little of that, that seldom have um, the Eucharist, like evangelical traditions, they tend to preach a long time. 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. And if I preached that long, I think you'd be getting the hook. Maybe it's all, we're just used to what we're used to, but we're somewhere in the middle there um, with about 20, 20 minutes for a sermon. But none of this really answers the question. It may answer the question of kind of how we got here since we grew out of liberal, uh, liberal Protestantism and we took... Our, the format of our services, even as our theology departed, we still kind of structured our services. Oh, we'll have some hymns, we'll have some silence, maybe we'll have a pastoral prayer time, a time when we hear about what's going on in each other's lives. Um, we'll have special music that adds a great deal to the service and the singing of a choir. Um, and then we have the sermon. So that explains kind of how we got there, but it it doesn't say very much about what is the sermon for, for us nowadays? And again, we probably all have different answers to that. But I'm the one preaching today. So I'm going to tell you what I've been thinking about. I mean, I thought, I really changed the way I preached when I thought about how sermons, really good sermons, had affected me how much they had changed my life in really good ways. Sitting and hearing somebody wise who maybe I didn't even know, I didn't even have any relationship to them other than, oh, here I am at General Assembly, and they're a UU minister, and I, oh, I think I've heard of this one, and I'm going to listen to what she has to say. And the person said something that really made a shift in my life, helped me to live the way I wanted to live. Um, our version of interpreting the law, interpreting the teaching. Most often they didn't say, here's the Bible and here's my interpretation of it and here's what you should do according to God, because that's not much of a UU thing. Although they might have used the Bible as one of their sources as we use it as one of ours. But they were very much talking about 
here's a spiritual challenge I see. And here's a way I think we might meet it. I'm going to spend some time laying it out for you. That really helped me a lot. And here's what I noticed, and I think of it with gratitude every week when you all sit quietly and listen to me. Maybe you're knitting, maybe you're sleeping. As I said, I, I also listen better if I'm doing something with my hands. So knit away, and if you're sleeping, well, maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night. And if you're on Zoom, you can just, you know, turn off your camera and nobody knows what else you're doing to multitask. But here you are giving quite a lot of your attention to this long address. And what I noticed when I thought about how they'd affected me is how infrequently at that time in my life I sat and listened to something for that sustained amount of time. Or even had a conversation that went on with depth for that length of time. I could feel that my attention span had been kind of shrinking. In fact, we celebrated books a couple weeks ago. I want to confess to you, I don't read as much as I used to. And I thought, what am I doing with that time? And it's, I'm doing things that don't take such a sustained amount of attention. Namely, surfing on the net, mostly. So I thought, and I think to this day, that something we're doing here in our services is quite countercultural. We are practicing paying attention to something for a long time. Maybe 20 minutes wouldn't seem like a long time to the people 200 years ago who happily sat and listened to Ralph Waldo Emerson. I want to remind everybody here, they weren't any smarter than us. They weren't any better educated. In fact, probably in general, quite a lot less. He used long words and long sentences and long paragraphs with many examples to get across each point. Nowadays, a director would say, move it along, Waldo. It's getting boring. But they weren't bored. So what happened in the last 200 years? So there's quite a lot of research about this, and there's quite a lot of urban legend about this. So I'm going to slander goldfish here for a moment. And I took a lesson from the people who, as some people say, buy our attention, are the, are the marketers and purchasers of our attention. And um, I, I put a little teaser in the in the website. For those who do look at the website and say, hmm, should I come to the service? I put a picture of a goldfish and said, you won't find out what the goldfish is about unless you come to the service. Old marketing trick. It is said that goldfish have an attention span of about nine seconds. Like, you watch a goldfish and you give it something interesting to look at, whatever interests a goldfish, I, I do you know, for more fish information and much more accurate fish information, speak to one of our ushers today, Mike McLaughlin. He knows all about fish. But the researcher said, okay, so you can tell if a goldfish is paying attention to something, and when its attention turns to something else, you know, its eyes shift, it swims away, and okay, goldfish 
clock in at an average of about nine seconds. And there are people who have been researching this about humans, too. How long do we pay attention to something? And um, Goldfish got back in the news when somebody did research and discovered that the average human can pay attention to something for eight seconds. <laughs> so we are officially, if not dumber than a goldfish, more distractible. Now, I, I don't know if that's quite true, and that's just one study, but as I said, there has been a lot of research, and it does show that within the enormous variation among people and among the kinds of things that engage or don't engage our attention, we see a trend that our attention spans are shrinking. Now, human beings don't actually evolve biologically in 200 years, so it's not that we're actually biologically different or less capable of paying attention to the people who poured in to see Emerson and his uh, companions and rivals. We're just out of the habit. And some really good things have come in exchange for the ways that we shift our attention, for all the things that compete and reach out for our attention and are so expert at distracting us and turning us to something else, usually something they want us to buy. But I think it's important to notice some of the things that we can't do in nine seconds, much less eight seconds, or even in five minutes, or even in 20 minutes, if I'm honest. But let's just start here with a sermon-sized chunk. With a UU sermon-sized chunk of attention, you can have a real conversation with a friend where you each get some time to share something important that's happening in your life. In 20 minutes, you can sit down with a partner and share something that's been bothering you in your relationship, and maybe the two of you work out some solutions to that. In 20 minutes, you can play probably three games with a four-year-old. And we laugh at four-year-olds, but let me tell you, there's such a thing as hyper-focus, and sometimes the adults get bored before the kids do. So maybe... A four-year-old could play three games with you in 20 minutes. It's not a lot of time, really. And yet, there's very little that we do that occupies this much time, that keeps our attention for this long. I believe that we are called upon in our congregations to understand our culture, to foster the things in our culture that are positive, of which there are so many in these times of wonder, and also at times to be countercultural, to notice the things that are happening in our culture that we wish were happening less, and to practice turning those around. So it may so sound self-serving on the particular day that I'm preaching, but I think of it when I'm in the pews as well, and when my mind wanders, and when I think of things I could be doing, and then my mind comes back to something that the person says in the pulpit that I think, oh, I needed that. I needed to hear that. I realize I'm doing something here 
that our culture does not really, on the whole, want me to do anymore. And the things that really take sustained attention are things even more important than connecting with a friend or mending our relationships. There are things like negotiating peace treaties, coming to really deeply understand somebody from another culture whom otherwise we would be literally fighting with, coming up with technological and cultural, social, psychological solutions to problems like climate change and hunger and the difficulty for so many people of accessing education or clean water. We got some things we need to address and they don't get addressed in eight second snippets or 20 seconds, 20 minutes either, but it's a start. So I really look forward to hearing from you all after the service about what helps you shift your attention to something longer? What do you do besides obviously come to this service so many Sundays that you feel rewards you're doing this very countercultural thing of paying attention for a long time? And what else do you think we could be doing to attend, to pay our attention, to give our attention to the things that matter most? Because that's really what everything in the service is about.